0: Welcome to Conversations and Complexity. Today I am absolutely thrilled to have Jane Barrett, who's the Secretary General of the International Federation of Aging, joining me today. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Ross. It's great to be with you this afternoon.
0: So the International Federation of Aging, how did you get there? Tell me a bit about your background, how you got interested in aging, and how you landed up at uh, Bridgepoint.
1: Mm. Look, I come from Perth, Western Australia, which is uh, about um, 30 hours flying from Toronto. And my background has always been an interest in ageing and disability and particularly caregiving in my earlier career. And I think that's probably because I was known, or would have been known as a child carer. You know, my brother had a disability, so I was in the realms of care and services and, and curiosity around the whole area of aging and caregiving. My background really um, dates back to being a dental therapist first of all and then an occupational therapist and then doing a PhD in population health um, and in between that a master's in medical sociology. So I've got a varied background but there's always been a curiosity around you know how people live and how people die and the whole life course of aging so, I took the job as Secretary General um, around 2001, and the headquarters was then in Montreal. And uh, the IFA moved to Toronto about seven years later. The IFA has a board of about uh, 15 international directors, and we're really proud and privileged to be part of Bridgepoint Sinai Health System now.
0: Fabulous! That's a that's a wonderful career arc. Mm. So some social sciences, some population Mm. health sciences. Uh, Just if you don't mind, tell me about your PhD thesis. I always like to find out Mm. where people concentrated Mm. probably the best part of their younger adult life.
1: Mm. Look, I was very curious around how services were allocated to people living in the community. You know, Australia's got a fairly sophisticated aged care system. You know, it's a a national-funded body, Um, And so there's equity across Australia. So people living in Perth, Western Australia, you know, will actually receive the same kind of assessment and services as someone living in Sydney, New South Wales, which is a little bit different to to Canada. So I was interested as to what were the variables that impacted the decision-making around the allocation of services. So I had the great honour of... Uh, interviewing about um, 350 older people, um, ranging from age 50 to age 102, hmm. doing a structured interview schedule. And then I did some you know regression analysis and, and all of that to better understand how they allocated services.
0: So after you finished your doctorate, mm. you started with the IFA or was there some time you were engaged in other activities?
1: You know, Ross, I've had a really, uh, one would say, um, interesting and checkered background. I've always been in the field of ageing and disability. So I've worked in the private sector. I've had my own business. I've worked for government. I've worked in the community. And I've worked at the coalface with older people and and their caregivers. So, you know, what I've understood in all of those different sectors is we speak different language. Mm. You know, um, we have a conversation and we think that we're talking about the same thing, but we're actually not. So I've actually had the great opportunity to, to learn how to communicate with government around the different needs of older people. But it's also, we're starting to lean towards looking at how older people can remain healthy in the community. And that's really an emerging trend that um, Canada is also embracing.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that diversity of experience professionally is critically important, particularly, I guess, because uh, the IFA has a huge policy mandate. Would Mm. that be fair to say?
1: Look, it is. Um, The IFA has something called general consultative status at the United Nations, and in particular, the Economic and Social Council, and also formal working relationships with the World Health Organisation. So, you know, our goal really is to be a global point of connection of experts and expertise to influence and shape policy. And the way that we do that, you know, from a vertical advocacy perspective is to really work at a country level and help build capacity of non-governmental organisations and then intervene and advocate you know, at the intergovernmental level with WHO. So back in 2015, the WHO published the first evidence-based report on ageing and health, and that's a landmark uh, report that is likely to change the nature of the way governments actually look at older people and develop services around them.
0: Yeah, and I think it's timely, given that... uh Aging is a global phenomenon. I think most people, when they reflect upon it, they think, ah, aging is happening in high-income countries. But what the data suggests is it's a global phenomenon, and all health and social systems need to have coherent policies around aging strategies. What do you see as the sort of key pressure points that need to be addressed first? If you were, if I were to make you the czar of the world for aging, what would be your first few things that mm-hmm. you would uh, address?
1: You know, I'd like that job, really. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll work on that. Oh, Good on you! Uh, look, one of the key issues that is most difficult and we don't address is ageism. Mm-hmm. And it's not only discrimination, it's the stereotyping of older people And it's also the prejudice. And it's the most insidious-ism in our world today, you know, up against racism and sexism. You know, ageism really prevents an older people doing what they value in life. And if we look at, you know, the the work of Amartya Sen and the capability approach, I think what we're coming up against is that most models in terms of long-term care Incentivize dependency. Yes. They do not incentivize, you know, autonomy, independence. Until we start actually shifting that narrative to what is a person able to do or what is the person wanting to do in their life, you know, we're still going to go down the rabbit hole of older people being recognized by government as a social and economic burden. So it's a narrative that needs to be changed. And that's one of the really important pieces of work of the IFA in helping to change that narrative.
0: And one of the critical ways that discourse plays out is in the costing of health services Mm. utilization and saying, oh, look at the demographics going forward. We're going to have to Uh, think about how we're going to pay for all of the health services as opposed to looking at it from the other side and I think part of the world health strategy was to talk about healthy aging Mm. and I think that capabilities approach is really nice because it gives people and persons not just agency, but multiple dimensions in which they can be encouraged to flourish. Mm. And then you can start to assemble policies in that direction as opposed to medicalizing everything.
1: Mm. I also think that we need to, just coming back to language and terminology, we often hear of the the rapidly increased prevalence of dementia mm-hmm. in the world today. And there's no question about... You know, cognitive changes as we grow older. And yet, reports like the tidal wave do nothing to help the conversation about cognitive reserve, brain health, what can we be doing across the life course? Because our work doesn't start with people age 60 or 70 or 80. You know, we have a belief that a life course approach, aging, starts at birth because we've got to keep remembering that. In less developed countries, such as Sierra Leone, for example, the average life expectancy is less than 40. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Australian Indigenous population, average life expectancy is about 55. And so we have to frame what we're talking about in terms of healthy ageing across the life course. What decisions should we be making in the earlier part of our life around lifestyle, which will impact, you know, our ability in older age?
0: Yeah, there's a huge amount of evidence now that healthy aging actually starts in the preconceptual age, you know, or when you're starting to think about what kind of prenatal and social environments are required to enable people to live full, flourishing lives, mm-hmm. and all the concern about adverse childhood experience actually probably has some life-limiting capacities within those experiences.
1: So the WHO and its report really talked about the interplay between the intrinsic capacity and the environment. Yes. You know, the importance of the environment. And we're not only talking about the physical environment. You know, it could be environment in terms of communication systems, you know, in terms of, you know, the emotional and psychological environment that the person is living in. And I think, you know, what we want to be doing in the future is, understanding impact of environment on a person's health and well-being.
0: Well, that's what I found fascinating about the Healthy Aging Report, is it took in the idea of the built environment, the social environment. It's a very holistic approach, which means that addressing these issues is not restricted. In fact, most of that activity is going to take place outside of the health sector. So what are your thoughts on getting people into that space? How do we generate meaningful policy and discourse?
1: One of the five priorities of the Global Strategy and Action Plan of the WHO that Canada as a member state signed off to, in addition to over 190 other countries, was age-friendly environments. And there's no question that Canada is one of the leaders worldwide in the development of age-friendly cities and communities. And is one of the affiliates of the Global Network of Age-Friendly Cities and Communities. I think what we have in Canada is several thousands of age-friendly projects. And we have many in Ontario. And I believe that the City of Toronto is part of the Global Network. So, you know, we are sort of up there. I think what we're missing at the moment is understanding the impact, you know, measurement and monitoring of an age-friendly environment and healthy older people and so it's about understanding how do we measure the impact you know are we really going down the track of how do we support somebody to live where they want to live you know do we actually look at the kinds of health systems and how we enable older people to actually be discharged back in the community so it's a complicated metric a number of metrics that we need to understand and And that's one of the areas that I know Canada is moving in, in Public Health Agency of Canada.
0: Yeah, that's one of my own personal interests is the whole measurement structure that we have. We tend to like to use census data or health services data. And I get a lot of pushback when I ask to actually rethink the measurements from the bottom up, that we need to re-metrify, so to speak, our thinking, because the phenomena that we're trying to measure or trying to understand isn't linked to the measurements that we're using. So uh, do you have any advice on how we can get policymakers and research funders to take uh, measurements seriously?
1: It's about what's in it for them. Yeah. And, you know, we have to put ourselves in their position and understand, you know, is it about the dollar or is it about... the the healthy older person? Is it about preventing premature admission to an acute care setting? And so it's going to take time, but also impacting this is this whole sort of umbrella of ageism. You know, why should we be interested in an older person who's 80? You know, hasn't their time almost finished? So we still have that social overlay of conversations. So I know that it's difficult to actually have the narrative with the metric around healthy older people but we've also got to flip it on its head and say what's the contribution that older people make to Canadian society and it's significant and it can be costed so it's it's that balance of argument to a policy maker what is the investment up front and a good example would be adult vaccination mm. do you know how many older people will die or have significant changes in their functional ability because they can't afford vaccines for pneumonia or they can't afford the vaccine for shingles. So how can we argue an investment up front actually pays dividends at the end of the day?
0: Yeah, I think that's true. So going back to your earlier comment when you mentioned that Australia has a fairly good system in place and putting on your for-today hat as the, now we'll make you the Canadian czar of our czar, you know, or, czarina, or, or you're, you've got untrammeled power to make changes within the Canadian system. How would you improve the way that we deliver services or care for older adults in Ontario, for example?
1: I'd be very serious, and I use that word deliberately, I'd be very serious about the nature of services that are available for people living in community. I don't believe that we have significant investment or the systems that enable an older person to live in community. I think we're still in the, the realm of thinking that a certain proportion of older people will always be in a nursing home when in fact I don't know what a nursing home is anymore. Mm. We need to throw that term out the window. So residential care, so I would put emphasis on rebalancing much more investment into the community care setting and less investment into building residential care facilities. And at the same time, I would make... Ross, I'm, I'm talking that I've got a spare $1 billion, all right? You know, I'm the czar, so I've got that. Um, but I would also look at the kind of facilities that older people are actually living in, in the moment. You know, no longer can we accept a standard of one or two bathrooms per 25 people. You know, so I think we really have to look at the kind of life that we as individuals would want to live, rather than say, well, that's them and, and I'm me. So I think we've got some, um, you know, strong discussions to have.
0: And while you're still wearing this hat, Mm. what advice do you have for clinicians, particularly physicians, nurses, and allied health professionals?
1: Look, if I was a czar, I'd give you another 24 hours in the day. That would be really helpful. Just a small story. I once said to an elderly gentleman, what could I do to make your life better? And he said, it would be helpful if people could just speak a lot more slowly. Yes. So sometimes it's the small things that make the biggest difference. You know, it's that person who said to me, my husband's died 70 years and I will never feel the hug that he gave me. And so when we're talking about physicians and care workers and health professionals, it's about can we all just take that pause and actually sit quietly and actually listen that's not a scientific answer, but that's one about human frailty mm. and human dignity and what we as humans can give to one another.
0: Well, I think that is a perfectly inspiring message for us to finish on. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day to come and speak with us. And uh, I think uh, Bridgepoint and Sinai are enriched by the presence of the IFA in our midst. And uh, I look forward to further collaborations and uh All the best wishes for the success of the IFA.
1: It's been terrific to talk with you today. Thanks, Ross, very much.
0: Great.